Father in heaven, we pray that your Spirit's voice would speak to us today as we wrestle maybe with something we're not expecting. Help us to see past our blind spot. In Jesus' name, amen. So I want to begin with a mental challenge today. I'm going to read you three texts, and then I want you to try to imagine in your mind how someone could put these three texts together into a single doctrinal thought. All right? Maybe you don't usually think like that, but, but think like that for now. So the first one is Luke 10, beginning in verse 18. Jesus replied, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. I have given you authority to trample on snakes and scorpions and to overcome all the power of the enemy. Nothing will harm you. All right, that's the first one. Second text, Matthew 20, verse 25. Jesus called them together and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be your slave. All right? Third text, Psalm 77, verse 11 and 12. I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your miracles of long ago. I will consider all your works and meditate on all your mighty deeds. Okay, three texts. So have you got it in your mind? A simple, easy, and succinct single concept that ties all these texts together. Have you got it? Because if you do, will you please tell me what it is? You see, one of these texts kind of talks about the victory of Jesus, and the second one kind of talks about how we treat each other. The third talks about considering the works of God in our life, and okay, maybe I could piece something together, but I'll be honest with you. If you were going to preach a sermon and you came to me with these three texts and told me you were going to use these three, I would absolutely wonder where in the world you were planning to go with that sermon. Because they don't exactly fall naturally into line, do they? Well, such is the situation with the texts associated with the frame we are considering today. Frames, that's the name of our, our summer series. I'm speaking at first and third, and Pastor Bernie is speaking at the bridge at second, about one, so we're doing several of the 28 fundamental beliefs of the Seventh-day Adventist Church. Now, I really want to encourage you. It's definitely worth your time during this series that some point during this week that you go online and listen to the messages that Pastor Bernie is doing on this same subject as well. Because what we do is very different, even though we're agreed on the point. And you can really get a much fuller development of this issue if you'll take the time to do that. And what he did today was fantastic. And he used an illustration today that was really good. You really want to hear it. But anyway, so this is what we're doing this summer. We're considering a few of the 28 fundamental beliefs, which are a series of voted statements that seek to frame our, and when I say our, I mean the consensus of the worldwide Seventh-day Adventist Church. So it's a series of voted statements that seek to frame our corporate understanding of the teachings of Scripture. 
The fundamental beliefs are for us very useful things, but only if we remember to use them correctly. And what is the key to using them that we must always keep in mind? Well, the key is they are frames. But the fundamental beliefs themselves are not the picture. The fundamental beliefs provide us with frames in order to help us contain and delineate the boundaries of our beliefs. But the beliefs themselves are not the picture. Jesus is the picture. The purpose of the fundamental beliefs is to help us gain a better picture of Jesus. They're the frames. Jesus is the picture. So with that reminder, let's dive in again. We are today considering a rather unusual frame, and in fact a frame unlike all the others in many ways. So let me see if I can give you a little illustration that can get us started here. Some frames are what we call portrait frames. They are fairly simple and straightforward for their single purpose is to contain a portrait, a clear picture of one thing. So, so let me give you an example. All right, you know what that is, right? That's the Mona Lisa, Leonardo da Vinci's painting. It's a complex painting. There's a lot of things there. I mean, don't make a mistake that, that a portrait picture can't, that portrait painting can't be complex, but it's pretty simple to know what you're supposed to be looking at there, right? That's a portrait. Well, today's frame is not a portrait frame. It's, it's a landscape frame. I'm not saying by this, suggesting that today's frame isn't a picture of Jesus. I'm just saying it isn't as simple as a, as a portrait of him. There's a few more details. It's, it's a landscape frame. And this is the kind of picture you get in a landscape frame. Okay, that's an alpine scene by William Stanley Hazeltine of the Hudson River School of Art, an art movement of the 19th century that focused primarily on large, sweeping landscapes. I know all of this because my wife, Alicia, taught me these things. But that's a landscape. It's not like a portrait. It's not like there's just one thing to look at there. Now, you'll better understand what I mean if I go on and read you today's fundamental beliefs. So let's do that now. It's number 11, titled Growing in Christ. By his death on the cross, Jesus triumphed over the forces of evil. He who sub subjugated the demonic spirits during his earthly ministry has broken their power and made certain their ultimate doom. Jesus' victory gives us victory over the evil forces that still seek to control us as we walk with him in peace, joy, and assurance of his love. Now the, now the Holy Spirit dwells within us and empowers us. Continually committed to Jesus as our Savior and Lord, we are set free from the burden of our past deeds. No longer do we live in the darkness, fear of evil powers, ignorance, and meaninglessness of our former way of life. In this new freedom in Jesus, we are called to grow into the likeness of his character, communing with him daily in prayer, feeding on his word, meditating on it and on his providence, singing his praises, gathering together for worship, and participating in the mission of the church. We are also called to follow Christ's example by compassionately ministering to the physical, mental, social, emotional, and spiritual needs of humanity. 
As we give ourselves in loving service to those around us and in witnessing to his salvation, his constant presence with us through the Spirit transforms every moment and every task into a spiritual experience. Okay, you might recall that last week I praised the authors of the belief, death and resurrection, for its pithy succinctness. I cannot render the same praise today. This is rather lengthy, isn't it? Yet I don't say that in condemnation. Last week was a portrait frame. This week is a landscape frame. There are several things about this frame that are different from the others, and there's a good reason for that. For you see, this frame that I just read you is the newest frame to be added to the set. If you've been around long enough, you'll remember that originally there were only 27 fundamental beliefs. Do you remember that? 27 fundamental beliefs voted into existence at the General Conference session in 1980. And those 27 existed as a completed set until a 28th, which somewhat confusingly is numbered 11 in the system, but it's done that way because it makes sense in the flow of things. But the 27 existed as a complete set until a 28th was added 25 years later in the year 2005. So why was it added? What is so important about this frame that we would add it to the 27 who seem to do pretty well on their own for 25 years? It's an interesting question, especially when one notes the rather breathtaking sweep of the picture inside this frame. One could almost call this particular doctrine a lengthily worded vision statement for the whole of the Christian life. We kind of covered everything, didn't we? So for the sake of our corporate understanding, let me show you a way that I think we can begin to comprehend what is happening in this frame. To me, this fundamental breaks into three sections, each one related to the other, but also distinct in its own way. And here's the names I've given each of the three sections that I believe this breaks into. Section one, Jesus' victory over the powers of darkness. Section two, our deliverance through Jesus' victory. And section three, our call to faithful living in Jesus' victory. So let me show you how this breaks down. Here's the first section, which I call Jesus' victory over the powers of darkness. Here's how section one reads. By his death on the cross, Jesus triumphed over the forces of evil. He who subjugated the demonic spirits during his earthly ministry has broken their power and made certain their ultimate doom. This is the victory of Jesus over the powers of darkness. And in support of this claim, several texts are cited in this doctrine, like this one. First Chronicles 29.11 Yours, Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the majesty and the splendor, for everything in heaven and earth is yours. Yours, Lord, is the kingdom. You are exalted as head over all. And also this one is cited. Colossians 2, verse 15. 
Having disarmed the powers and authorities, Jesus made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. And then, in, in my opinion, there's another one that they didn't include in the notes, but to me, this one captures it best of all. Isaiah 63, verse 1, who is this coming from Eden, Edom, from Basra with his garments stained crimson? Who is this robed in splendor, striding forth in the greatness of his strength? It is I, proclaiming victory, mighty to save. Why are your garments red, like those of one treading the winepress? I have trodden the winepress alone. From the nations no one was with me. I trampled them in my anger and trod them down in my wrath. Their blood spattered my garments and I stained all my clothing. It was for me the day of vengeance. The year for me to redeem had come. The victory of Jesus over the powers of darkness. No one could help him. He had to win alone. So this is the first part, this victory of Jesus over the powers of darkness. But then comes part two, our deliverance through Jesus' victory. Jesus' victory gives us victory over the evil forces that still seek to control us as we walk with him in peace, joy, and assurance of his love. Now the Holy Spirit dwells within us and empowers us. Continually committed to Jesus as our Savior and Lord, we are set free from the burden of our past deeds. No longer do we live in the darkness, fear of evil powers, ignorance, and meaninglessness of our former way of life. Okay, so this is section two. And this section is supported with texts like Psalm 23, 4. Even though I walk through the darkest valley... I will fear no evil, for you are with me, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. So can you see this? How the victory of Jesus becomes my deliverance and sets me free from fears. But an issue arises for most of us at this point. You see, we assume that we understand where this section is coming from. But I want to push back on that for a minute. Do we really understand this? There are certainly elements of this section of the frame that we undoubtedly can relate to. But there's also some that I'll bet got past you without you even really noticing. First of all, you probably noticed these words. Continually committed to Jesus as our Savior and Lord, we are set free from the burden of our past deeds. Ah, oh, yes. To be set free from the burdens of our past deeds. Who doesn't love the release that comes to us, the release from guilt that comes with forgiveness? But here's the question. Is forgiveness of sins... The only thing the victory in Jesus has given us? Or is there more? There was a reason this frame for a sweeping landscape painting wasn't originally included in the 27, but then became essential as time went by. And it is all primarily due to a fundamental blind spot in the faith of most American 
and European Christians of any branding. And what is that blind spot? What is our blind spot? I want to suggest to you the spirit realm. You see, most of us who were raised in a North American or European cultural milieu, regardless of race, were raised in what the researcher Charles Taylor calls a disenchanted world. And what does Taylor mean by that term? Well, put much too simply, what it means is we don't believe in spirits anymore. There's no such thing as ghosts, right? There's no such thing as cursed objects. Don't be ridiculous. The communion bread doesn't actually turn into Jesus' body. That's a symbol. Medicine heals people, not magic. Storms and droughts are not the result are, and storms and droughts are the result of natural causes, not God's wrath. Now, interestingly, we have kind of a funny twist on this. We've determined that we're capable of changing the environment, but certainly God isn't. Kind of funny where we've gone with that. Maybe miracles happen, but how would I ever know for sure? Now, I know I'm overstating the case, for there are many among us who see miracles all the time, right? And sometimes we wonder if they aren't a little crazy, right? Don't get me wrong, I'm not trying to oversimplify this as if it's an either-or kind of thing. I'm simply trying to explain what Taylor means when he says, we live in a disenchanted world as opposed to the enchanted world of only a few centuries ago. We are conditioned to doubt the spirit realm. And because of this fact, the doctrine we are considering today didn't make it into the original 27 because why would we need it? We're all rational here, right? You see, to us, the victory of Jesus normally means his victory over sin and the forgiveness of sins that flows to us as a result. That is why phrases like continually committed to Jesus as our Savior and Lord, we are set free from the burden of our past deeds. That's why we can connect easily with that. And we perceive such statements as the primary meaning of this fundamental belief. But to assume this is to miss some other items of interest that this frame reveals. Did you catch this part when I read it? No longer do we live in the darkness, fear of evil powers, ignorance, and meaninglessness of our former way of life. Now, we have our own definition for darkness, and by it we usually mean sadness or depression or some kind of long-standing negative psychological condition. Oh, I've really been in darkness for a long time. You should see a counselor, right? But this frame isn't just talking about that. It's talking about the darkness of the reality of the presence of spirits and powers of evil around us in the world. 
And if you think I go too far, listen to the text that these ideas come from. Colossians 1, 13. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves. Ephesians 6, 12. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Luke 10, 17, the 72 returned with joy and said, Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. He replied, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. I have given you authority to trample on snakes and scorpions and to overcome all the power of the enemy. Nothing will harm you. However, do not rejoice that the spirits submit to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Now, I know we believe these things in a hypothetical sense, but do we live in a manner that suggests we believe these things are a reality in our lives? In truth, the more theologically liberal among us tend to want to make statements like these completely figurative. And don't get me wrong, I I don't want you to become superstitious But maybe you could be a little stitious, right? It's because of this preconditioning that this doctrine which keys not narrowly on Jesus' victory over sin, but instead keys even more on Jesus' victory over the forces of evil, It's because of this that it was likely missed the first time through and only added later. Well, how in the world did we ever figure out how to add it later? What woke us up to the need to have a statement about Jesus' victory over the forces of evil? Well, it was the rest of the world that woke us up. The part of the world that isn't Western. The part where evil spirits still haunt the people and the part where miracles still seem to happen. The parts of the world where the victory of Jesus isn't primarily an issue for theological debate or a means to relieve me of feelings of guilt. No, it's a little more concrete than that some places. It's the rest of the world where the victory of Jesus means not just the forgiveness of sin, but even more than that, it means deliverance from evil. Deliver us from evil. So where does this leave us? Well, it ought to cause us to pause for at least a moment. Our lack of awareness of the spiritual realm in the Western world has guarded us well against any real fear of evil spirits. But has it also caused us to become ignorant of the true dimensions of our struggle? And to what degree has our freedom from belief in evil spirits also inoculated our hearts from the indwelling of the Holy Spirit? Is our default Western secularity 
causing us to miss a huge part of the reality of the faith. So we need to finish this frame. I mentioned there were, in my mind, three parts to it. This last part we won't need to spend much time on because it will feel familiar enough to you. In this new freedom in Jesus, we are called to grow into the likeness of His character, communing with Him daily in prayer, feeding on His Word, meditating on it and on His providence, singing His praises, gathering together for worship, and participating in the mission of the church. We are also called to follow Christ's example by compassionately ministering to the physical, mental, social, emotional, and spiritual needs of humanity. As we give ourselves in loving service to those around us and in witnessing to his salvation, his constant presence with us through the Spirit transforms every moment and every task into a spiritual experience. I called this portion our call to faithful living. And it probably feels quite familiar, doesn't it? I mean, isn't that, isn't this what most sermons you hear are about? Grow in the likeness of Christ. Pray, read your Bible, come to church, stewardship, service, compassion, evangelism. Isn't that what most sermons are about? Now, just because these words are familiar, don't think I'm denigrating these concepts. These are crucial, and you will be hearing about all these things from me quite frequently. There's lots of texts listed within the doctrine that support these, but I'm not going to read them to you because the truth is, there's probably nothing on that list that you would necessarily disagree with. We, we kind of know that, right? We know that's what the life experience is supposed to be. So three sections. How do we pull this together and end? Well, how about with the text that I think manages to bring all three sections of this frame together? Colossians chapter 2, beginning in verse 6. So then, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in Him, rooted and built up in Him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world rather than on Christ. So let me suggest this to you. If you are Western, the hollow and deceptive philosophy most in danger of taking you captive is called secularism. And it comes with a total denial of the spirit realm. Are you captive? Verse 9. For in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. And in Christ you have been brought to fullness. He is the head over every power and authority. Christ has won the victory. And in his victory, we live and become victorious, not just over sin. You see how we fixate on that part, right? But in his victory, we're not just victorious over sin, but we've been made victorious over the evil forces that surround us. 
And what is the result? Verse 13, when you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. Condemnation is gone. A new life is ours. Why is it possible? Verse 15, and having disarmed the powers and authorities, Jesus made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. The point. There is a spiritual side to the faith that we in the Western world much too often have completely missed. Why? Because we converted the faith into propositional beliefs, righteous works, and moral actions. All very concrete and hypothetical, right? And that's good as far as it goes. But are we missing something? So I want to end today in a bit more of an unusual way. I want to start a closing prayer for us. As we enter that time of prayer, I'm going to stop in the middle of that prayer for just a little bit and leave you to listen for the voice of the Holy Spirit with these questions in mind. Lord, is there more to this than I realized? And the second question, have I missed your spirit? Let's pray. Father in heaven, we do not want to be trapped by any hollow and deceptive philosophies in our day. Yet we can't help but be the product of the culture in which we were raised. And much of the way we have grown up has been a real benefit to us and has saved us from a lot of foolish superstition and has produced a lot of wonderful things. But it's also caused us to forget that by your hand the world's existed and by your will we live our lives. Lord, have we lost touch with the voice of your Holy Spirit in our lives? Have we converted the faith to nothing more but a bunch of beliefs and actions? in words and behaviors? Did you mean more for us? Speak to us, each of us, in this moment of silence.
Claim us, Father, as your own. Send your Spirit into our lives that we might live the full victory that is ours through Jesus Christ. In him we pray. Amen.